Good morning. I'm reading from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the word. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kim. Let's pray together as we unfold the scriptures. O Lord God, Father of Jesus Christ, would you give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ so that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, help us to know the hope to which you've called us, help us to know the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints, help us to know how powerfully you are working in us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Well, this fall, we have been thinking about what does it mean to grow to become a mature Christian? Uh, Not just Christianity 101, but kind of Christianity 201, you might say. That's a little bit too linear. That's not exactly how it works, but if it helps. What does it mean not just to be a baby Christian, but to be an adult Christian? What does it mean, uh, as the author of Hebrews says, not just to to be drinking spiritual milk, but to eat spiritual meat, to, to bite our teeth into a steak, so to speak? What does it mean to grow in my faith, to grow beyond the basics and to become a more mature and more wise follower of Jesus? We've been asking that question and then looking through the lens of the New Testament letter from James. James was Jesus' brother, so he had some insight into what it meant to be um, a Christian, you might say. And this morning, we're going to look, we're really going to focus on that last little chunk. If you're here in person, it's what's on the second page of your bulletin, verses 26 and 27, where James starts to talk about religion. Now, religion is an interesting word. It's It's a word we don't... It's a word we kind of do use and we kind of don't use a lot. Um, The word religious meant in James's time and in Jesus' time about what it means now. Somebody who's very observant, somebody who's very devout, they follow the rules, they do all the right things. 
whatever their religion, they obey the rules, they do the sacrifices, they this, this, this. Today, we might call that somebody who, they go to church, you might say they go to the Bible study, they do the, they, you know, they give the cans of, of food. The, what does it mean to, to be a devout religious person? Nowadays, the trouble is the word religious can also mean somebody who's kind of shallow or somebody who's a hypocrite. In other words, they do all the external things, but some of their actions don't quite line up with what they say. That wasn't just the case in James's time, and in fact, James is going to address some of that this morning. He says this, if anyone considers himself religious, that's how he starts 20, verse 26. Then in verse 27, he says, true religion is this. So we're thinking about this morning, according to James, and really according to God, what is, what is true religion? You've got, he's going to paint this bad religion, a picture of bad religion, and then he's going to paint a picture of pure religion. Let's look at those two and see what he says. First, he says this, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, that person deceives himself and his religion is worthless. We see, again, I mean, we've seen this before. James is pretty blunt in how he talks, isn't he? He doesn't hold back. He doesn't, he's not flowery. He doesn't beat around the bush. He just calls it how he sees it. In fact, we're going to see that he's even more blunt than this English translation indicates. But it's interesting to note that what is, what's the one thing James singles out about bad religion, so to speak? He, he could have said bad religion is any number of things, but what's the one thing he points out? The tongue. Our words what we say. We'll see this throughout the course of the day, that, that what we say is maybe one of the best indicators of what's in our heart. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 12, he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's almost like the, the heart is a, it's, imagine, it's almost like your heart is a balloon and it gets really, really full and eventually it gets so full that it has to compress and, and some of what's in the balloon has to come out. And so what comes out is what's already in it. What's in your heart is what will come out of your mouth sooner or later. So James says, if you think you're religious, if you think you're observant, if you think you're dutiful, if you think you're obedient, you obey God, but you don't keep a tight rein on your tongue, but you don't keep a tight rein on your, on your tongue. He says two things. One, you're deceiving yourself, and two, he says your religion is worthless. Now first, let's just point out, he talks about keeping a rein on your tongue. The, um, it's, it's at least a little more vibrant image. Uh, you could also translate that as a bridle. Those of you, I don't know if any of you have ever ridden a horse, any, any horseback riders, what's a bridle? He literally says, if someone thinks they're religious, but they don't bridle their tongue, a bridle is what, you know, you have a bit and a bridle and the reins and you put the, so you put the bit in the, I'm not a horseback rider, so you can correct me after the sermon, but you put the bit in the horse's mouth and then the bridle connects it to the reins. And so when you turn, when you turn right, uh, you're right, when you turn right, the horse's head turns right and it goes that way. And when you turn, let pull left, the, so you can actually use the bridle to steer. It's just a, a bit and bridle is not that big, especially the bit, tiny little thing. And yet you just kind of pull the horse either way and it directs that whole powerful creature. The bridle controls the horse, the whole horse. So when James talks about bridling our tongue, what's he saying? He's saying someone who doesn't bridle their tongue is someone who, who doesn't control their tongue. 
It's out of control, so to speak. Now, we can think about a number of examples of what this looks like. Um, this could be somebody who speaks before they think. I'm sure that's not true of any of us. This could be somebody who just talks too much. This could be somebody who talks about people behind their back. So they say one thing to a person, then they say another thing about that person. The Bible calls that gossip. It's, it's one of the most destructive forces in the world. Uh, it could be somebody whose speech is just kind of destructive instead of constructive. You know those people, um, some, however you quick to complain, quick to criticize, find fault, quick to see the downside. Uh, Marilyn McCord Adams had this really funny quote where she said, there are some people who know how to make the worst of a good situation. Uh, it's like, <laughs> now by the way, it's worth pointing out that this comes right after James has said, remember just a few verses back. James said, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to speak, slow to speak, slow to anger. So when you're angry, what does your tongue do? I read some of these a few weeks ago. I'll read them again because they're, it's just good. Uh, the Proverbs, the Old Testament book of Proverbs is full of wisdom about our tongue. Here's just a few, a few, I've just pulled out four, there are hundreds. Um, A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. Here's another, this is my favorite one. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Here's another, Uh, A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. One more. He who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. Maybe the Proverbs do the best job of illustrating what somebody looks like who doesn't bridle their tongue. If you want to read more, we had some of these out a few weeks ago. I left them out. There's a whole stack of... um, I went through, we just preached a series on Proverbs several years ago, um, and I just found every proverb that talks about our words and what we say. Uh, it's like seven or eight pages long. But uh, there's, there's little booklets, so if you want to just, you know, have some light reading this afternoon, pick up one of those booklets. Um, it's really instructive, and you'll see the wisdom in it. What does James say? He who thinks he's religious but does not bridle his tongue, what? One, he deceives himself deceives himself. Maybe even a more literal translation would be deceives his heart, which is helpful again, because remember, Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, notice what James is not saying. He's not saying that if you don't bridle your tongue, God will condemn you and crush you and judge you. He's not really saying anything about the judgment of God. He's just talking about what's going on internally with us. If we think we're religious, we've got the externals down pat. We go to church, we do the Bible study, we read the right books, we listen to the right music. If everyone looks at us and sees the good stuff externally, but we have a sick heart, James says we're just deceiving ourselves. If your words are good, in other words, That's because they're growing from a healthy place in our heart. But when our hearts are sick, they'll inevitably start to overflow into uh, sick words. 
So in other words, you can look at your words as a diagnostic for what's going on deeper in my heart. What does James say? Don't just look to your external actions to gauge whether you're appropriately religious or not. He says, consider your words. What do your words diagnose in your heart? James says that we're deceiving ourselves if that's the case. And then number two, he says this is even more harsh. Our religion is worthless. Now, I want to, uh, there's some tension here, right? Because I don't want to just pile on and pile on and pile on. And uh, we don't want to be just depressing. Thanksgiving is coming. And come on, Chris, lighten up. But this is what James says. And like, let's deal with the scriptures honestly as, as, as they're taught to us. Notice James does not say, again, let's look at what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that we are worthless. He doesn't say God condemns us. He doesn't say God will, will squish you like a bug. But he does say your religion is worthless. Um, here's the image that comes to mind. Imagine going to, to the bank and trying to deposit some cash. And you go and you, you give them a couple of hundreds and the bank teller, you know, draws on them, them with that special marker and they say, I'm sorry, I can't accept this. You say, why not? They say, well, this is a counterfeit hundred bill. See, it, it looks right. It looks right, but, the, but it's actually like your money's not good here. It's not worth what you think it's worth. You've been deceived. Maybe that's the best way to, to think of that word worthless. Like a, it's like a counterfeit. It's something that looks right, and it might actually fool some people. You could go down to the convenience store. I mean, no convenience store takes hundreds, and who pays with a hundred at a convenience store? But if they did, you, could, you might could fool the convenience store clerk, but it won't fool the bank teller. You see? It looks right. It looks like it has value, but it doesn't. Our religion may impress some people, but it doesn't ultimately have value. I, let, me, let me qualify that. When we say we're religious and don't bridle our tongue. If that's not the kind of religion that God wants, then what does he want? I'm glad you asked because James answers that and he answers it in two parts. He says, on the other hand, pure religion, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. And he gives two answers. One, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And number two, to keep oneself from being polluted or from being stained by the world. Two points, very simple. One, we care for those who can't care for themselves. And number two, we remain somehow set apart from the world around us. Now, every commentator that you'll read on these will point out that these are not the only two things that comprise pure religion. In other words, it's not like I've done one, I've done two, and I'm set, and there's nothing else to following Jesus. That's not what James is saying. He is saying that these two are necessary, and if we don't have these, we don't have the complete picture. He says, one, we care for widows and orphans. Over and over in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. God consistently cares for who Jesus calls the least of these. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say, when you care for the least of these, you're actually caring for me. That's a powerful thought. 
Now, James talks about widows and orphans. This can mean more than just widows and orphans. In ancient times, widows and orphans were some of the uh, most vulnerable people that you could imagine. Widows didn't have a husband to care for them, and in a very patriarchal society where the, the value of a family lay in the man who was the head of the household, you can imagine that a widow was in a very disadvantaged position. The times are a little bit different now. They're actually pretty different. Um, but, but you understand what he's getting at in his context. An orphan is even more so. They don't have a parent to, to take after them. Uh, a lot of times this might be something like what we imagine as a street kid. We don't really have those in the United States, but other third world countries do. Literally kids who are just fending for themselves. But we can imagine how this applies to a lot of other types of people. Anybody who really can't fend for themselves. That could be people with mental illnesses, this is immigrants, and actually throughout the Old Testament, God talks about his care for widows, orphans, and immigrants. James doesn't mention them here, but God very specifically does over and over in Scripture. People who don't know the language and the culture, uh, people like refugees. This could be people who are homeless. This is people who are hungry. When we consider helping someone, we're looking for people who can't help themselves in essence. The people who can't give us anything in return. Maybe that's the best way to think of it. Someone who can't pay you back. And isn't it true, I, isn't it true that, that when you consider stuff like that, I mean, stuff like this is kind of anonymous, so this is a little different, but if, you're, if so, you, you find out of a need, somebody needs some help, and it's a one-on-one -on -one interaction, or you're passing someone on the street, or somebody in your life who needs help, like, isn't there part of the back of your mind that does a little bit of calculus, just a real quick math equation, and you think, how, how much can they pay me back for this? Maybe not literally, like, if I'm going to lend them money, they're going to give me money back. But how much, if I'm going to scratch their back, can they scratch my back a little bit? Even just a little bit. And isn't it true that, that at least mentally, whether or not we actually do this, we start wondering, gosh, well, if they can't really give me anything in return, maybe I'll be a little bit more careful in what I give them. We don't want to admit it. Of course not. But the widow who has nothing she can give in return, the orphan who has nothing they can give in return, James says, says caring for the least of these, it's not a transaction, it's a gift. It's a gift. True Christianity, James says, true religion, truly walking with Jesus is not so much about what we do externally and how we look externally, but that even quietly behind the scenes, we give as much as we can, that we're constantly challenging ourselves to give more and sacrificially to those people who can give us the least in return. That's the first area where James shines the spotlight. Here's the second. It's very different. True religion is this, that we look after ordos, orphans, and ordos, orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted, or another word for that uh, translation is stained by the world. By the world. And a lot of the New Testament... <clears throat> Excuse me, we see this word, the world. And usually in contexts like this, it means those parts of the world that are just broken or um, that are depraved. So when James says, keep yourself from being polluted by the world, he doesn't mean have nothing to do with the world around you at all. 
He doesn't mean completely hunker down and put up the walls and live in your, your little perfect Christian bubble. He, he doesn't want your life to look like a Thomas Kincaid painting. That's not what he's saying, where everything is exactly as it should be. No, and in fact, there's a quote on the front of your bulletins about how true religion means we step into a broken and polluted world. But it does mean we look different from the world around us. It does mean that we're discerning. It means that we live in a broken world and we engage with a broken world, but we still kind of have one foot in and one foot out. So where the world around us, have you ever seen an instance, maybe recently, where the world around us was not quick to listen, but was slow to listen? Was not slow to speak, but was quick to speak? You ever seen a time when somebody wasn't slow to anger, but quick to anger? See, when the world around us tends to be and tends to reward being quick to speak and slow to listen and quick to anger, quick to outrage, we reward the person who breaks the story first or who has the hottest, freshest take. In a world that says, be quick to speak and slow to listen, James says, no, don't don't let that infect you. In fact, they will know that there is something different about us when we are quick to listen and slow to speak, when we bridle our tongues. And by the way, let's just point out again, when he says bridle your tongue, he doesn't, he doesn't say suffocate your tongue. He doesn't say mute your tongue. A bridle doesn't, bridling your tongue doesn't mean you don't speak at all. It just means it's controlled. Where the world lets the poor fend for themselves... And maybe says to the poor something like, you, sh- you know, you just you should have made better choices. Jesus says, no, we go out of our way to care for those who can't care for themselves. So if you look carefully, you see James is kind of guarding against, against two sides, two equal dangers. When it comes to walking with Jesus, most of us tend to, to gravitate towards one of two extremes. Either we're very concerned with, with personal purity and my own holiness and righteousness, and I become so concerned with that that I disengage completely from the world. Don't even, don't let it touch me. That's the mindset that says, you know, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Some of us tend towards that extreme. Other of us, others of us tend towards the extreme where we're incredibly concerned for the world and things like social justice so much that we neglect our own personal righteousness. Both of those approaches are problematic. Neither of them paints a complete picture. Uh, as the old saying goes, the devil doesn't care what side of the horse you fall off of. <laughs> James, by saying this, is guarding us against both. He says both matter. Concern for the poor matters. And if you don't have that, it's an incomplete faith. And he says personal righteousness and holiness matters. And if you don't have that, yours is an incomplete faith. You see? Personal holiness without care for the poor is not complete. Care for the poor without personal holiness is incomplete. Let me just point out one last thing about this. Those of you who've listened to me preach for long enough, for several years, you know I love passive verbs. 
Those of you who are English teachers uh, will be with me. The rest of you, you can tune out and tune back in in about 90 seconds. But let's just get excited about passive verbs for just a minute. Notice what James says here. He says, uh, keep, uh, religion that God accepts is to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To keep oneself from being polluted. That's passive. In other words, you're not the one polluting. You're, you're getting somebody else, something else is acting on you. Imagine you're a river. What can a river, the, so Piscataqua River, there's that gypsum plant right up the road. What can the Piscataqua River do to keep itself from being polluted by the gypsum plant? Nothing. It's passive. It actually is very dependent on the external forces in the world around it. That same word can be translated as stain. So those of you who are parents, what can, uh, imagine you're a pair of kids' jeans. What can a pair of kids' jeans do to keep itself from getting grass stains? Absolutely nothing. It's going to happen. You're going to get grass stains. Unless mom just uses tons and tons of OxyClean. What, there's a sense in that, in that our faith actually is, and I've got to try, I've got to try carefully, so don't take this and not hear anything else, but there is a sense where part of our faith is passive, is reliant on something external. And here's why that's important. We love to be in control of things. You and I love to be in control of things. Whether that means your house is in order and everything is exactly where it belongs, whether that means your relationship is in order and everybody's doing exactly what you want them to do, whether that means that your career is on, a, on an upward trajectory and you're controlling exactly the moves you make and the people that you work with so that you can get that next promotion, no matter how it looks, all of us, to one degree or another, love to be in control. And there's a danger to think that you can control your environment so perfectly that you can make yourself a mature Christian. Remember, James is all about what does it look like to become a mature Christian. By using a passive verb here, and this isn't by accident, James is implying this. Don't think you can manipulate spiritual growth. Don't think you can muscle your way into spiritual maturity. You can't. Part of this is passive, which means that you are dependent on the grace of God much more than you realize or would like to admit. Friends, you and I need God's grace in order to grow. Just like the river needs the grace, so to speak, of that gypsum plant to keep itself from being polluted. You know how I know you believe this? At least I think you believe this. Because we all prayed together this morning, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You notice in that prayer that Jesus teaches his followers to say, he doesn't say, don't let us walk ourselves into temptation. That would be active. We pray every week to God and say, God, lead us not. That's passive. We don't say, God, give me the strength to fight off the evil one. That would be active. No, every week we pray, deliver us from evil or from the evil one. It's passive. I'm not saying your whole faith is passive and nothing you do matters. I am saying that there is an aspect to where you have to come to grips very humbly with the fact that all of this depends on the grace of God. 
That being said, the metaphor falls short because you do have more agency in your life than a river or a pair of kids' jeans. You get to make choices. And so there is a sense when James says, keep yourself from being polluted if you can control your environment, that it's fitting and it's appropriately to carefully consider what environments am I in? And how am I responding to the environments that I'm in? And am I in environments that are helpful or unhelpful? Again, this is not to say you completely distance yourself from the world. But do you consider your environment? See, there's tension. In some sense, all of our faith has, has a measure of tension. It feels like we're being pulled in two directions. On the one hand, James is, is saying, don't be fatalistic. Don't just think it's all in God's hands and nothing that you do matters. On the other hand, he says, don't think you're in as much control as you think you are. You actually need God more than you realize. In fact, you cannot grow to maturity without God. You can't make yourself a mature Christian. What do we do there? This is exactly where James wants us. You see, he's, have you noticed this? He's been setting the bar progressively higher and higher. He's been giving us a standard that's, that's more and more impossible. You ever tried to bridle your tongue? You ever decided, I'm going to speak better or be more patient, and within hours or days, it doesn't work? I had a moment just this week, Thursday morning, where I most assuredly did not bridle my tongue. (laughs) And I'm the pastor. I preached about it, you see? There comes a point where we hear God's word, we hear the standard, and it's so high, and we realize, oh, I just can't. I just can't. And that's when God says, I've got you right where I want you. You think, I can't bridle my tongue, no matter how hard I try, and I just keep slipping. And God says, look to my son, who as he hung on the cross, could have let loose with his tongue. And remember, the voice of God is powerful enough to create. Jesus could have used his tongue and called down angels and crushed the very people who were crucifying him, but he didn't. He bridled his tongue. He controlled his tongue, and instead he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You think, I I try to care for the poor, but the more I think about it, the more I realize how self-centered I really am. And God says in response, look to my son who did not consider his godness something to be exploited, but who humbled himself and at the cost of his very life gave you life. You who are spiritually poor and needy, just like a widow or an orphan. You read this and you think, I... I don't know how to, to navigate that tension, how to live in the world but not be, not be stained or polluted by the world. How do I do that? And God says, look to my son who was completely unblemished and who stepped into a polluted world to take the world's pollution on himself, who absorbed all of the stains and the pollution of our sin so that we might be holy and blameless blameless. Paul says, 
and other parts of Scripture that if you're in Christ, you are blameless, pure. You see, in all these things, we don't fix ourselves. We don't grow to maturity ourselves. We can't do it. We need to go deeper. We think we can fix ourselves by fixing our behavior, but that's really no different than treating a broken bone by taking an extra strength Tylenol. Like, yeah, it hurts, but that's not actually the problem. That's a symptom of the problem. You need to, you need to get to the root of the problem. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words actually aren't the problem. My words actually aren't the problem. It's our hearts. So don't just try to fix your words. Don't just try to fix your actions or your behaviors. Look to the one who can give you a new heart. Look to the one who let his heart be broken so that you would have a new life-filled heart. Let's pray. Lord, help us to look to you. Help us to look to your son, Jesus. Help us to remember that we really, we really need you. And we, and we want to want you, and sometimes like we want to want you, but we don't even feel the desire or the want in our hearts, and we just need you. So teach us, grow us, help us to become more mature by relying on you, not less but more. Help us to hide ourselves in Christ so that we might look and taste and smell like Christ. We ask all of these things in his precious name. Amen.